In Proverbs 31, we're introduced to King Lemuel. It says, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle taught him by his mother. Here, Lemuel's mother asks him, what are you doing? What are you up to? What are you getting involved in? She says, don't give your strength to women. Don't commit your ways to those who destroy kings. She says, it's not for kings, Lemuel, to drink wine and for rulers to take strong drink, lest they forget what they decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. She tells him in verse 8 and 9, the best use of his time is to open his mouth for the voiceless, to open his mouth for the rights of all who are destitute. She says that as king, he should open his mouth and judge righteously and defend the rights of the poor and needy. Hey friends, and welcome to From the Pulpit, a series of podcasts based on the Sunday morning sermons at Liberty Church. My name's Pastor Matthew, and I'm thrilled that you decided to join me for this installment of From the Pulpit. Like all good moms, Lemuel's mother admonishes her son to avoid the usual pitfalls, namely women and wine. She encourages him to give his attention to speaking for those who can't speak for themselves and to make righteous decrees that protect the rights of the marginalized. I believe this portion of scripture is in the Holy Bible because it is the responsibility of all human authority to be a voice for the voiceless. It wasn't just the responsibility of the covenant kings of Israel but it was the responsibility of all the rulers of the earth to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. Human institutions are required by God to uphold justice for the marginalized and the innocent. And when governing authorities are not meeting this requirement, the church is required to speak to the conscience of human institutions in order that they might repent of their error and the nation be healed. Legalized abortion is a disease infecting the nation of Canada. Since abortion was decriminalized in 1969, the Canadian government has failed to put forward any legislation that would legally protect unborn babies. No conservative government, no liberal government, no NDP government has put forward any legislation that would protect unborn babies. Six provinces prohibit pro-life activists from witnessing outside abortion facilities with what is known as bubble zone legislation. So 
Since 1969, no Canadian government has put forward legislation to legally protect unborn babies, but they were sure to put forward legislation that would protect the rights of women who made the decision to murder their unborn children. Over 4 million babies have been legally murdered in Canada since 1969. And that number is probably way higher because hospitals in Canada are not required to report how many abortions they commit. I want to speak uh, to this issue today, not just as a provocateur, but as a pastor as well. I have the wonderful privilege to be the senior pastor here at Liberty Church And to speak to some of these social issues as a pastor means that I must speak with a measure of grace and empathy and patience, not required by provocateurs, not required by conservative radio talk show hosts or podcasters. Um, I think their role is very important. I think that people need to be provoked in this area. But as a pastor... I want to speak to this issue with grace, empathy, and patience. Uh, I want to give you the tools in this podcast to think critically about the pro-choice or pro-death movement, to think critically of it. And I also want to give you the tools to think rationally and logically and biblically about the pro-life argument. Because thinking critically and rationally about this issue means that we have to think biblically. On his podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience, Joe Rogan attempted to think critically and rationally about this issue when he interviewed Seth Dillon, who is the CEO of the Babylon Bee. Seth thinks biblically about this issue. Joe was thinking critically and rationally, but his criticism and his rationale fell short. He called the abortion issue messy, complicated, and human. But if the abortion issue is messy, it's because humans have made a mess of it. And if it's complicated, it's because humans have complicated it. You see, humans are made in the image of God, In Latin, it's called the imago Dei. And as a result, anything that affects humans is actually a spiritual issue. So there's no such thing as a human issue separate from God. We are God's image bearers, and so anything that affects us affects him. You see, at its core, abortion is neither a cultural political, or human issue. It is a spiritual issue. And if you believe it is anything but spiritual, you are deceived. And I am brave enough to call you deceived because I am humble enough to admit to you that I too was deceived. But I'm not deceived anymore. My eyes have been opened and I cannot unsee the truth. I see the abortion issue for what it is. To see the abortion issue for what it is, we have to look to the Bible 
because the Bible resolves all spiritual disputes and the dispute over whether abortion is right or wrong is a spiritual one. You see, as Christians, we must not only think critically of the pro-death movement and think rationally and logically about the pro-life argument and movement, we must also speak to the issue. It's not enough just to think. We must speak. We must open our mouth and speak to the issue. The Christian martyr during the Second World War, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote this, If I sit next to a madman as he drives a car into a group of innocent bystanders, I can't, as a Christian, simply wait for the catastrophe, then comfort the wounded and bury the dead. I must try to wrestle the steering wheel out of the hands of the driver. When Christians speak to the issue of abortion, we are wrestling the steering wheel out of the hands of the driver. And right now, the driver on this issue is human institution and the culture. They are both driving this issue into innocent bystanders, and the innocent bystanders are the future generations. To speak to the issue of abortion, we first have to call it what it is. And abortion, as I said a few moments ago, is the murder of unborn children. It is nothing more than that. It is nothing less than that. And it is nothing else than that. And those who, those who support a woman's choice to murder her unborn child are members of a baby-killing cult. Calling those who are indoctrinated with abortion ideology, members of a baby-killing cult, is not meant to be an insult either. It is meant to be a direct description of who they are and what they support. People who support a woman's choice to murder the unborn baby in her womb are members of a cult. You see, every cult has as one of its tenets mass suicide or mass murder. And those who uh, are indoctrinated with abortion ideology, well, they have mass murder as one of their tenets, the mass murder of unborn babies. And they will stop at nothing to do it. They will stop at nothing to murder the babies. That's what they want. It's what they've always wanted. They want to murder the babies because they are part of a satanic baby-killing cult. And so we have to call abortion what it is, and we have to avoid emotivism. You see, much of the public conversation on this issue amounts to nothing more than emotivism. Instead of having rational debate and presenting logical arguments that are grounded in reality, both sides exchange examples and hypotheticals with one another, intending to elicit an emotional reaction. We stood on the corner of Highway 2 and 57 here in Bowmanville on Sunday, October 2nd, to peacefully and prayerfully demonstrate our stance on this issue. We joined the Campaign Life Coalition uh, Life Chain Movement, and we held signs provided by them 
that say things like abortion kills babies and stop abortion now and God forgive our land and things like that. Nothing, nothing hateful, nothing, um, you know, angry in tone, just straightforward, plain language. And it's amazing the reaction, the emotional reaction that even those, those simple signs elicited from passersby, many, many people driving by uh, blew their horns and uh, waved their middle fingers at us. Many shouted expletives. But that's what the public discourse has been for a long time on this issue. One side screaming, calling names, and um, you know, using obscene gestures and profanity. And then the other side uh, quietly taking it. And then when the pressure gets uh, too strong, we uh, oftentimes have, have lost our cool. And as soon as we do, the, uh, the baby-killing cult is right there to accuse us of uh, being hateful and being bigoted and, and being violent. And so it is a very difficult uh, thing to speak to. It's a very difficult debate to have, a very difficult argument to win. But we are called to speak to it. And when we speak to it, we should avoid emotivism. We should stop trying to elicit emotional responses. Instead, we should, we should speak to it uh, in very plain and common language, and we should not be tempted to stoop to the level of the other side and throw insults. We got to keep our emotions out of it. We got to keep hypotheticals out of it. It is true that for those who support abortion or who are unsure of where they stand, the issue is complicated emotionally. But when you look to the book, when you look at what the Bible says, it is very simple and plain. It is not complicated logically. Let's take a minute and uh, debunk the five main pro-choice or pro-death arguments. And to do this, you won't need to memorize a lot of scripture. You won't need to memorize any statistics and you won't need to know anything about natal science. All you will need is logic, reason, and common sense. The first argument that the pro-death movement uses is they claim that abortion is health care. Abortion is health care the same way that rape is lovemaking. Abortion takes place in hospitals and is committed by doctors but it is not healthcare. Rape on the surface looks like lovemaking, but what needs to be uh, judged is, is the intention and the consent of those who are involved. Rape is a terrible crime because the intention of the rapist is to take something that doesn't belong to them. 
that is for the other person to give to whom they choose, not to be stolen from them. And uh, rape is a terrible crime because the victim is unconsenting. When it comes to abortion, there is an unconsenting victim. And that is the unborn baby in the mother's womb. So abortion is not healthcare in the same way that rape is not lovemaking. Abortion is not birth control or quote-unquote planned parenthood. Abortion is the legalized murder of the innocent for profit. Many women, the vast majority of women who have abortions do so because the pregnancy is unwanted or inconvenient. They use abortion as a method of birth control. And in doing so, they numb the culture to the fact that abortion is nothing more than legalized murder. Now, some of you are already asking, but what about? You've already brought hypotheticals into the argument. Some of you are thinking about ectopic pregnancies. With regards to ectopic pregnancies, let me say this. Such pregnancies which result in the termination of an unviable pregnancy. Remember that word, unviable. Such pregnancies that result in the termination of an unviable pregnancy are indeed healthcare. But ectopic pregnancies and pregnancies like that do not in any way, shape, or form justify abortion on demand. Abortion at any time, for any reason, or no reason at all. In Canada today, a woman can have an abortion at any time, for any reason. There are no laws protecting the rights of unborn babies. The federal government has set the precedent. There are some provinces, as I mentioned earlier, that have some regulation on when an abortion can take place. But the federal government sets the precedent. And with that precedent, it won't be long before women will be able to have abortions right up until birth and even post-birth. And so the fact that some women have ectopic pregnancies and other pregnancies uh, which make the pregnancy unviable is in no way a justification for the abortion on demand that we see in Canada. The second argument that you hear from those who are pro-death is that abortion is necessary in cases of rape, incest, and harm to the mother. Now, I just told you that the vast majority of abortion cases are from women who have themselves deemed the pregnancy unwanted or inconvenient. A doctor a medical professional has not deemed the pregnancy unviable, but the mother herself has deemed the pregnancy unwanted 
or inconvenient. That's the case for the vast majority of abortions. But some will say abortion is necessary in certain instances, in certain cases, in the case of rape or incest or harm to the mother. Let me say this. Rape is a terrible crime. It's an atrocity. Victims of rape have been violated in a profound and life-altering way. And it is true that many who are raped never fully recover, never fully get over the trauma of the experience. However, when a baby is conceived as a result of rape, we should never punish the baby. We should instead seek to severely punish the rapist. Punish them so severely that they would be unable to ever rape again. You see, I believe that the biblical stance on abortion is that terminating a viable pregnancy for any reason is wrong. Here's a simple syllogism. Killing an innocent life is always wrong. Abortion is killing an innocent human life. Therefore, abortion is always wrong. It's always wrong to kill an innocent human life. And abortion is killing an innocent human life. Therefore, abortion is always wrong. You see, the problem is that a woman was raped. The problem is that a woman is poor or uneducated or unmarried. The problem is not that she is pregnant. You see, if you kill a baby conceived as a result of a rape, the woman was still raped. The rape doesn't go away. Women who are poor or uneducated or unmarried or who are too young to be a mother and to be responsible for another human life, the problem is not that they become pregnant. The problem is that they are poor, uneducated, unmarried, and young. And if you kill the baby inside of them, you don't fix the problem. A poor pregnant mother who has an abortion is still poor when you kill the baby or is still uneducated when you kill the baby or is still unmarried or is still unfit. And so as a society and as a church, we need to put our efforts into fixing the problems, not assuming that abortion is a, is a, is a, is a solution in any way. In fact, it just makes the problem worse. The third argument you hear from the pro-death side is that the government doesn't have the right to tell a woman what they can do with their bodies. The government can't force women to be mothers. It's uh, an argument summarized by the four words, my body, my choice. And I couldn't agree more. The government should never violate a person's bodily autonomy. However, not everyone can communicate their intentions. Not everyone has the ability to protect their bodily autonomy. And so who will speak for those who cannot speak for themselves? Who will protect the rights of those who cannot protect themselves?
The government's not doing it. The culture's not speaking up for the unborn. And so it must be the church. Those who are in covenant relationship with God, we must speak up. We must speak to the culture. We must tell the culture God's ideal. We must uphold God's ideal. The fourth argument you hear from the pro-death side is that anti-abortion legislation is regressive or racist or anti-woman. Progressive ideology has infected the nation's policymakers. And so for me, whenever legislation quote-unquote regresses toward the biblical standard, I'm okay with it. I think it's a good thing. Whenever we regress backwards and whenever that regression um, is in the direction of the biblical ideal, then I, as a Christian, am totally okay with being called regressive. Some people say that the anti-abortion legislation proposed by those on the pro-life side of the argument is racist. But we know this for a fact that abortion disproportionately affects minority communities. Pastor Vadi Bakum calls abortion the black genocide. It is true that there are more planned parenthood clinics in um, racial and ethnic minority communities than any other community. And then some would say that anti-abortion legislation is anti-woman, but really the pro-choice or pro-death ideology is anti-woman because it doesn't give women a choice. Well, it gives women one choice, which is no choice at all, and that choice is murder your unborn baby. The pro-life movement gives women options. The pro-life movement tells women the truth about abortion so that they can make an informed decision. The pro-life movement uh, tells women that there are options, that they can carry the baby to term and give the baby up for adoption. Uh, the pro-life movement gives women the opportunity to see an ultrasound and hear the heartbeat of their baby and make a maternal connection with that baby. And oftentimes when mothers uh, see an ultrasound or hear a heartbeat, they choose to become mothers. And so they have the choice. They make the choice. But the pro-death movement gives women no choice. It is the true anti-woman movement. And finally, another argument that you hear from the pro-death side of the discussion is that Jesus never directly condemned abortion. So it's okay. Now, this argument is commonly used by progressive Christians who are cuddled up to the world. But just because Jesus didn't condemn something, it doesn't mean that we can do it. I mean, John 3.17 tells us that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it. He came into the world to save it from God's justified wrath. Uh, Jesus never directly condemns any sin. 
whenever Jesus addresses a particular sin, it is always to bring clarity, not condemnation. And he doesn't bring this clarity so that he can add more condemnation. He brings this clarity so that people can see their sin and their need for a savior. You know, Jesus never directly condemned slavery or racism. You know, these egregious uh, sins against humanity. Jesus never directly condemned uh, the sins that the progressives accuse Christians of, like uh, misogyny and transphobia and homophobia and transmisogyny. Jesus never condemned those things, but does that mean that we can do them? Well, the answer, of course, is no. Plus, Jesus affirms everything written in the Old Testament. Jesus told the religious leaders in John chapter 6, You search the scriptures, hoping that in them you will find life. But these are they which testify of me. These religious leaders were reading the Old Testament, hoping to find some type of life in them. And Jesus says, you're reading that Old Testament, the books of Moses, hoping that you'll find life. But they testify of me. Everything written in the Old Testament affirms Jesus. And Jesus affirms everything written in the Old Testament, especially the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Especially Leviticus 18.21, you shall not offer your children to Moloch. And so if the Old Testament says it, then Jesus affirms it. If the Old Testament condemns it, then we can be sure that as followers of Christ, we are not to participate in it. And so my question to you now is, are you ready for what's next? Are you ready for what's next? They're coming for us. They are coming for us. And so it is time to stand up. It's time to put on the armor of God and pick up the sword of the Spirit. It's time to put on the belt of truth. It's time to put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's time to put shoes on our feet, the preparation of the gospel of God. It's time to put on the helmet of salvation and take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's time to be bold and courageous. And as Peter said, we must not fear their threats. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. If you truly believe that, then it is time to act like it. If you truly believe that the one who lives in us is greater than the one who is in the world, then it's time to act like it. And there is no time to waste because the soul of the nation that our kids and grandkids will grow up in hangs in the balance. And if you're not standing dressed in the armor of God, holding the sword of the Spirit, then you are not ready. Will you speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves? Will you give a voice to the voiceless? Will you uphold the rights of the least among us, especially the unborn? Jesus died for the unborn. Thanks for listening to this episode of From the Pulpit. Let us know what you think by leaving a comment in the comment section. Give us a five-star review to help us reach more people. 
And until next time, never forget, it's Jesus only. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Titus 2.13.